This is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're going to hear again from David Brudrick on the job description of a movement catalyst. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about the job description of the movement catalyst. Sounds really fancy, but that's the best way I could describe what I want to talk about. <laughs> what, does, what does David do? A, a lot of people ask me that question. So, David, what on earth do you do? Um, my mother asked me that once, and I tried to explain to her. And um, she just had this glazed look on her eyes. Like, she can't understand this. When I was running a church, she knew what I did. She thought she knew what I did. But now she has no clue what I do. And eventually I said to her, Mark, I, I, I travel around the world and I have coffee with people. <laughs> and that's the best way I can describe it. Because in essence, that is what I do. I travel around the world and drink lots of coffee with people. Sasha and I have had lots of coffee together. We have uh, flown through Moscow Airport at one at th- no three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> uh, landed in strange places, gone in at high speed in very dangerous cars that are definitely not roadworthy, and done all kinds of things together. But in essence, a lot of what I do is I go around having coffee with kids, uh, and I shared some of that yesterday. Is we train, we train, we train an environment until we find the key catalytic leader. And then we really stop all that work and we just focus in on that leader. And we start to try and work with that, with that particular leader and spend a lot of time with that particular leader. So, again, there are three uh, functions for movements. How, how did that top bulb? There, there's an operational, tactical and strategic function to a movement. Um, a lot of what Steve has described yesterday was, was, was really talking about an operational function. A lot of what Steve is describing today moves towards more of a tactical function. And what I'm describing to you is more of a strategic function. And in two days, you're not even getting one-tenth of one percent of the big picture. But I'm hoping that you get something that will help you understand how movements really work and how they're built. So what I'm going to do is just go into greater depth around the strategic function. What, what do I do? I do not start a lot of discovery groups or, just D, or DBSs with unsafe people. Now I have. I have. I've started many and I probably would lose count. I, I would guess personally... Um, at this level, I had started about 20, more or less. And then I realized that if I stayed here and everything was dependent on how many groups I could start, then uh, we weren't going to get traction. And so I started to train leaders who would start groups or, or who would go out and catalyze groups as outsiders. And so I began to gather leaders together and began to function there and then we had eventually had teams that are gathering together you saw some of those photographs and they function there we get teams together we do this kind of exercise not the same but it's very very similar and and we have people talk about what are they struggling with where are they getting stuck now we have teams that are doing that we have gatherings of people that are doing that and well I've given that function away because a big part of what you have to do is, is give your job away the whole time. Just give your job away. So eventually, well, I'm not needed here. Yeah, I could probably go and start one or two groups, but you know what? I have guys that are way better than me at doing this, especially in different cultures. You know, we've got so many cultures in South Africa. I, I have a very narrow band, even in my own country, where I can really do this effectively. But we've got Zulus, we've got Kozas, we've got Vendors, we've got Afrikaners, we've got English, we've got all of these guys in our country and they're doing it in their own culture, in their own context, and they do a, a much better job 
than I do. Much better. And so my job is to serve them. We, we have guys now that are doing that very, very effectively. And are, are there problems? Of course there's problems. There's always problems. There's always struggles. But we have guys that are wrestling and, uh, with this and, and doing that effectively in different regions. And, and, and I'm not really needed for that. So where am I needed? I'm, I'm needed there. And, and that's where I currently focus my time and my energy. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what does, what does David do? Because um, a lot of people ask me that question. So what do you do? <laughs> really, when, when, when you begin to, to function as a movement catalyst and when you step into that function, the, one of the first things that you do is lead through influence. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Your job is to keep the focus. So my job is to lead through influence and it is to make sure that the focus stays what it should be. My job is to collect actionable intelligence. To go around and to say what is happening where and, and is it really happening and um, what are the problems and what are the struggles. And, and I don't want to just collect statistics for the sake of statistics. I want to collect information for, for action. I want to see what information do I need to know in order to make a change, in order to improve, in order to grow the work. I, I formulate intentional strategies and I, I do a lot of that with teams. I help them understand um, how to move into new areas, new regions. I mobilize tactical teams. I do that quite a bit. And we're going to go into some detail on each of these. I, I knit together distributed hubs, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, I picked up that you guys have done some of this in CRM and use some of this language, but I train, coach, and mentor. I do quite a bit of that. That's the best part. That's, that's the fun part of the whole thing, because you just get to spend a lot of time with some really, really good guys. And um, training, coaching, and mentoring for me, 90% of it or more is with nationals. Not with missionaries. I go with, into, into a, a country, and, and I'll, this is probably the first time that I'm in Ukraine that I'm not with nations. <laughs> that I'm standing here with missionaries from elsewhere. Most of the time, I'm with Ukrainians in Ukraine, and with Russians in Russia, and with Africans in Africa. <laughs> and I don't speak to a single missionary from going in to leaving again. And I, and, I, and I train and I coach and I mentor across cultures often. But, I, but what I'm doing, I'm spending time with very, very strategic leaders who, who I'm able to help and they're able to take those principles and bring them into their own culture. Questions at the end? Uh, let me go through the list and then we, can, then we can stop. I manage change and chaos. Because a, a movement is constantly in flux and it's constantly on the edge of chaos and breakdown. And if you, if you don't want that, if you don't want chaos, you've got to go and form a rigid system that will never become a movement. So I spend a lot of time managing change and chaos. I form systems that serve the movement. So I spend a lot of time thinking through. We had a conversation around this table and one of the struggles here was in a in a um, Middle Eastern environment that that the system is, is preventing something and blocking something and the system is that um, marriages and funerals and those kind of things are done through religious bodies and so a Muslim that leaves Islam now suddenly has that problem how do they get married how do they get buried so now I'm going to I'm going to be working, spending time with them saying, if these are systems that need to be put into place to serve the movement, how do we do that? I spread stories, legends, songs, and events. So that's what I do. Now, obviously, I can't explain that to my mother. I tell her that I go around the world having coffee with people. But that, that, is, that is what I do. So let's, let's go through those as quickly as we possibly can. 
first of all, I, I lead through influence. Leadership through influence is something that, that you've got to grow in if you want to lead movements. It's a deep shift that takes place in the heart. Many church systems, many mission systems, uh, many religious systems operate that way. And they can't become movements. And sometimes those things are not as obvious as we would like them to be. Both of these create a change. Both of these movements create a change. But this one created change by the people. This one was a movement from within, from underneath, from the people. And so if you want to become a movement catalyst, you have to learn to lead by influence. And, and, and this is what Norris loves this, this passage of Scripture, and it's a great passage of Scripture. Uh, it says this in Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. It is a leader of no reputation that is able to lead a movement where, where, where you literally say, if this movement matures and there are thousands of churches and there are thousands of leaders and none of them know my name, that is okay. If none of them know who I am, that's okay. I'm not going to lead this from the top. I'm not going to have a power over. I'm going to create a movement that is the power from within. And so here's the dream that I, that I started with and I'm, I'm going to read this to you very quickly and then we'll stop and pause and have a brief conversation again. When I started, I said to myself, what if the movement that I started, forgive me for the language, it's a bit complex, but that's what I wrote when I first started this. I said, what if the movement I started was self-organizing and self-governing in whole and in part? What if I could start something that was not dependent on me, but it rose from within, rose from the people? What if it was designed to foster maximum autonomy? In other words, every person could make their own decisions, and I, I didn't just let them make their own decisions. I actually coached them to make their own decisions. But enables in co coordination and coherence at every level. In other words, it all looks similar, but it's all autonomous. What if that movement is able to thrive amidst diversity, complexity, and change? What if I could create a movement that wasn't just about doing what I said they must do? What if I created a movement where every unit, everywhere, if I'm not in Ukraine, but these guys are in Ukraine, and they hit a problem, they don't have to pick up a phone and phone me or phone somebody else, or you know, I'm in Brazil and, and, and they've got guys there and they hit a problem, they, they don't have to phone me and say, David, what do we do now? But I actually empowered them to deal with the complexity and the diversity and the change that they needed to deal with where they are. And what if I could take such a movement and I could guide that kind of movement to be self, uh, this kind of self-governing, decentralized movement towards transformational change, towards actually making an incredible impact on a nation and a country. That's the dream that I started the movement. That's what, I, that's, that's what I first said, I, I want to do that. That's what I've given my life for. All that aside, there are three things that will stop you from being that kind of leader. I'm going to say them out pretty straight. Three things, and you can write these down. There are three things that will stop you from being that kind of leader. You can try what you want, but these three forces will pull you back if you don't deal with them. They are the three pillars that keep you in a power control type of mentality. The first one is, where do I get my significance? Mm -hmm. I come across missionaries all over the world that find deep personal significance in being the center of attention. That can find deep personal significance in being the one who's named. Who find deep personal significance and the one who touches and feels and has to be there and has to hug the children and has to be on the ground and has to be the center of everything. 
And if that's where you get your significance, if you're not willing to, to step aside and die and empower others, but if you have to be the center of everything, you, can't, you won't lead a movement. The second thing is, what do people expect of me? And I, I had to change these. Going from a pastor, where all this kind of stuff is expected of you, I, I had to change the expectation of the people. Because they, they expect you to do that. The religious world expects the paid professional to perform. And if you, and if you can't break that, you're not going to be able to leave them. And the third one is really powerful. What am I paid to do? When I started saying to the people in my church when we first started this, I, I would stand up and I'd say, I, I'm no longer going to be the pastor. You're going to pastor. You're going to care for the sick. You're going to pray for the sick. You're going to do this. And one old guy walked up to me in the end and said, that's what we pay you to do. <laughs> what, am I, what am I paid to do? And these are deep questions that we need to ask ourselves because you cannot become a leader of influence if you don't deal with these three issues. I, I have... I have situations where in the early days we worked with churches and we said we're going to move you from a church to a movement. And we made that shift. We moved them from a church to a movement. And their income dropped by 90%. Why? Because the people were paying the pastor to do that. Now suddenly there was the shift and, and now they didn't see the need to pay the pastor for that anymore. And so what happened? The pastor said, oh, I'm paid to maintain the system. So he pulled it away from movement and became a con command and control structure again because of that pressure that was on him. You don't deal with that. You can't become a leader of influence. So I'm going to give you probably more time than any of the other points to talk about this one. And that more time is five minutes. So... <laughs> So turn quickly to someone next to you and let's just deal with these three questions very quickly. And again, we're touching the surface. We're touching the surface. But what I want you to ask, what I want you to ask of the person that you're with is which three of these prevent you from becoming a leader of influence? How many of you, how many of you would be honest with me and say that sometimes when it comes to giving away leadership and... How many of you would say honestly that you sometimes feel threatened by others, by their success, that, that this is sometimes a problem? The rest of you are liars. So that's fine. How many of you would say that this is sometimes a, a, a struggle? How many of you would say that this is sometimes a struggle? So the next thing that I, that I um, do is keep the focus. I'm going to keep this one relatively short, move quite fast here. I'm going, to move a little, I'm going to pace a little bit faster even than I planned because of the lack of time and also I might want to call Sasha up and have a little conversation with him. So why do we keep the focus? We keep the focus because everything drifts. You go to a place and you train them and you train them very, very, very carefully and you get the course online and you say this is the way to go. And you come back again a year later or six months later to that area or that region and you find out that it's gone sideways. It's, it's drifted, they've lost the focus, they, you've taught them how to do certain things but now they've added <coughs> other stuff, they've taken some things away, they've drifted from the values. And so I have to help them to refocus. I have to help align and straighten that again. Um, one, a wise old mentor once said to me, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so a part of what I do and a movement catalyst does is make sure that the main thing stays the main thing. And, and all the time I, I help people focus on movement. We start getting some traction. We start seeing some multiplication. And then it stops. And then I go back and I find out that they've become distracted. And they started doing other things and they've added all kinds of other things to their time to their schedule and so instead of multiplying disciples and disciple makers 
now they're, they're doing all sorts of things that are not as important, that they may think are more important, but they're not as important. And so I have to, to help them to do that all the time. So here's a question we're not going to talk about now, but here's something that I'm asking myself all the time. And again, if I'm doing this with, with, with strategic leaders, I'm doing this over a few days and we're spending a lot of time on each of these questions. Okay. You just say the question. I'm going to. Thank you. So the question is this, what has to die? What do you have to kill? What must I revive in order to stay focused? And I ask myself that all the time. I say, what in my life, of all the things that I'm doing, what must I stop doing? What has to die? And often even in my own life I find that. I find I'm carrying things I shouldn't be carrying. Mm -hmm. And I have to let go of them. Well, in the movement, exactly the same thing. We start doing things, extra things, and, and eventually it's so heavy, it's so weighted down that we, we stop seeing movement, we stop seeing multiplication. So we have to streamline again. What do I have to start doing that I'm not doing? I'm asking those questions the whole time in the movement. The next thing I do is collect actionable intelligence. That's a fancy word for... Um, I go and find out what's happening and figure out how to fix it. <laughs> so I spend a lot of time going around and saying, uh, what can I measure that is important for action? You can collect a lot of information, but information is useless. You can get so weighed down in collecting statistics and collecting stuff. And there are, there are guys that are into all kinds of movements that collect all kinds of strange and weird and wonderful information that is totally useless to, to anything. I want to ask, what do I need to know to help the movement move forward? Constantly I'm asking myself that question. What do I need to know? And then I'm going to go and find that information. So I'm asking questions all the time. And I do a lot of this through coaching and mentoring people. I'm sitting with people and I'm asking questions. What are you struggling with? So the questions that Steve has been working with here... Where are you getting stuck? Uh, are things multiplying? How many generations have they multiplied? Why are, they getting, why are they not going further? What is happening? Why are you getting stuck? Globally, I don't really try and make much effort to collect accurate statistics. In our work in Southern Africa, I go to much more effort to collect accurate statistics. And success for us is replication. So and in everything that we do, we're asking ourselves, can we go at least four generations deep? Everything. I'm talking about churches, I'm talking about DBSs, I'm talking about leaders at every level. I'm asking them, so can we go four generations deep? But replication is so deep, I'm asking the question of everybody. I'll sit with a musician, and my first question is, which musicians are you training to be musicians? I sit with an artist and I say, so how many people are you transferring your skill to? Um, replication is absolutely in everything. It's a deep, deep value. And I'm constantly asking myself these four questions. Who is mentoring you? Where are you? Who are you mentoring? And who are they mentoring? All the time. So I would sit with Steve, hypothetically, Steve is someone that, I, that I'm mentoring, and, and, and if I'm sitting with him, I'm going to say, Steve, so who are you mentoring? And he'll mm. tell me about them, and then I'll say, so who are they mentoring? Mm. I'm going to go at least two generations deep. Then I'm going to say to Steve, Steve, um, I, I've, I'm helping you and I'm mentoring you, but what skills do you need to learn that I don't have? Who else is mentoring you? So I'm going to ask that all the time because I'm building generationally the entire time in everything that I do. I'm going to ask who else is mentoring them, who are they mentoring, and who are those people mentoring? Four generations and everything. Everything we push at least four generations or more. I don't know how true it is, but some guys tell us that you get to fourth generation, the rest happens. I, I don't know, but we go at least four generations deep. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, four generations deep. Okay. Paul, Timothy, reliable men and others. So everything we're going to go, we're going to push those generations. Now, this guy here is asking the same questions 
of him that I'm asking of him. And he's asking the same questions of him that he's asking of him. Everybody's asking that question the whole time. The discovery groups are multiplying and need, we constantly need to be asking ourselves, so how many groups have started from this group? And how many groups have started from those groups that have started? Constantly. Now, although we push for multiplication, and, and this is something that, that, I, that I want you to understand from a strategic perspective, understand that a lot of the work will not multiply. Hmm. Okay? And so when I, when I look at the work, I'm constantly pushing for multiplication, but there is a, what, what, what they call a long tail, where there isn't multiplication. And I have to learn how to, to walk in that balance. And so typically, from a strategic perspective, this is what a report would generally look like. I'm sitting with a strategic leader, and he says to me, there are 540 groups. And I say to, I say to people, we have 540 groups, and they're 10 generations deep. And people immediately think there's 540 groups, and everything is multiplied 10 generations. And mm. it's not the truth. Mm. Yeah. Okay. This is typically what it looks like. Typically, three teams will have high multiplication rates, and then it starts to fall off. Now, I'm pushing everything to multiply, hmm. but understand when you're working with many teams that that doesn't always happen that way. So I have a strategy to work with these guys, but I also have a strategy to work with these guys. The guys that don't multiply sometimes can be more than the guys that are multiplying. So here I could have a total of 260 groups, but if I look at the long tail, I could have a total of 270 groups that are first or second generation D. And how do I deal with it? Well, I take these guys and I see, can they teach these guys something? I start to bring them together and I start to network them so that I can take the more successful leaders and help them to help the less, the less successful leaders in multiplication. So I'm asking myself, what must I measure? What is my definition of success? What is my definition of failure? How does this inform my strategy? A lot of people have a definition of success but not a definition of failure. They don't say. They say, you know, we want, we want 100 groups by the end of this year. But they don't say, if we don't have 100 groups by the end of this year, we failed. And so they get to the end of the year, and they've got, you know, one group, and then, well, that's okay. That's, that's all right. You know, we've, 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 we've been good. <laughs> so I'm asking myself these questions. At what point do we look at it and say, this is not working? At what point do we maybe look at this and say, we need to drop this and move on? I'm asking myself those questions and everything that we do. Okay? A lot of thinking going on in the room. Mm. Intentional strategic planning that I'm involved in. And I'll, I'll stop at, at this one maybe and have a bit of a discussion. So, intentional strategic planning is something that I'm constantly doing. Um, day and night, I'm sitting up at night, I'm, I'm looking at things, I'm looking at the work and I'm praying into different regions. And these are the, the two biggest questions that I'm asking myself. Where are we not, and how can we get there? So, you know, the teams and the guys that are multiplying discovery groups, they're working on the ground, and they're getting stuff done, and they have a tunnel vision. They don't see the big picture. And that doesn't make them less important. It makes them critically important. But that's not my job. My job is to stand back and to say, we have teams working really hard here and working really hard here, and I'm praying for them. But here's a place, here's a group of people where there's no work. We're not there. How can we get there? That's constantly what, what, I'm, what I'm doing. That's my job. How can we get there? And there, there are six perspectives to that. And I'm going to give you this PowerPoint, so don't even try and write all this down. But I'm looking at that all the time, geographically. Where, where do they make their dwelling? In other words... I pull out a map and I look at it and I say, we're here and we're here, but we're not here. Linguistically, what are the barriers? We're, we're working with the Zulus, we're working with the Khozas, but we're not working with the Shangamas. 
how do we get amongst them? Demographically, how many of them are there? Well, we've got a significant work with this group of people here, but there's only a million of them, and there's a group of people here, there's 20 million of them, and we've got no work with them. I'm asking myself that question. Socially, how they relate to each other, and that changes in cities. Okay. I'll give you the PowerPoint, Sasha. <laughs> Ethnically, okay, uh, who they're related to and how they live. Worldview, what do they believe about the origin of nature, God, man, the creation. So we're working amongst the Buddhists, but we're not working amongst the New Ages. We're not working amongst this group of people. And I'm constantly asking myself those kind of questions. And that's what my job is. And strategic planning is about turning the resources you have into the power you need to win the change that you want. A big part of what I'm doing all the time is mobilizing tactical teams. So I'm asking myself, and I'm going to skip over some slides here. Um, I'm asking myself, can I mobilize a team who will begin to work to start discovery groups, to start churches, to start things in a different region? And this is an actual map of Zululand. And, and here I, I worked with mobilizing a team. And as we sat down, we said, okay, um, how can we move into this, all of these areas in this district? And they said, well, if we put strategic hubs down there and there and there and there, and they identified the towns, then from there we can actually have work going in these villages. And so many of these now have, have got uh, training hubs, they've got villages where discovery groups are going. Some of these have turned into churches. Uh, I'm sitting with teams all the time, and I'm, I'm thinking through this kind of thing. I'm looking through this kind of thing. We've, we've, this particular district has probably about 20 of these different maps that we're working on all the time and saying, we need to be in that area, we need to be in that area. Uh, there's Enanda, Kwamashu, Claremont, mm. Pumalanga, Chatsworth, uh, Umbumbulu. You just made that up. I didn't actually. <laughs> and, <laughs> so how many people are there in here? In the Itakweni district there are 3.5 million people. Their goal, the team's goal, was to say in the next five years we want to see three and a half thousand disciple making churches reaching the 3.5 million people. So I'm sitting with that team and they're well on that journey, they're well on that goal to seeing that established. And so what I'm doing is I'm mobilizing teams in local areas, tactical teams, and they're sitting and planning and they're busy rolling out, planting discovery groups, moving into areas where they should be. I'm constantly doing that all the time. Okay. Any questions around what I just shared? <laughs> have you been to Umbumburu? I have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to touch on aspects of, of this. I'm going to move forward. I want to get to the coaching thing. So here we are. Big part of what I'm doing is training and coaching and mentoring leaders. Sorry, you missed the link. Distributed parts. Yes, I did. Intentionally. We can come back to it if we need to. So I'm training and coaching and mentoring leaders. Um, here's a group of leaders in Madagascar. And this, this, just these guys is one, two, three, four, five, six, and there's a seventh one that's not sitting here. These seven guys now have started probably around 8,000 churches in the, mountain, the forests of Madagascar. Um, I, I don't even count those in, in our statistics at all. <laughs> um, and so I'm sitting and I'm, and I'm talking through with them in a, in a hotel in Madagascar for seven days we're sitting and we're talking through how can we expand the work and at this point they were sitting at about 1,500 churches in, in the work and so we sat with them and leaders walked through the forests for miles, for days came through the forests, came into the city and we sat and talked about that and going straight back a lot of these, a lot of these guys went back and started to mobilize teams that would walk for three, four days to new villages and start new work. And that came out of that strategic planning. Uh, this is Zululand do, doing the same thing, sitting down, uh, looking at with, with our leaders, uh, where are we not? I'm asking the questions, where are we not? How can we get there? 
And I'm sitting with them and we're making, we're planning, we're, we're praying, we're struggling through those kind of things. But a lot of the mentoring is with one-on-one with key leaders. Walking around with key leaders and really just asking them questions. So at this point, I'm going to ask Sasha to come. Sasha, come. So this is Sasha, he's an incredible guy, he is my mentor. And <laughs> he teaches me a lot. <laughs> So, we did some trainings in Kiev. The first time I went was to Kamenets Podolsky, where, where he was. He was running a Bible school. And we did some training there. And then since then, we've traveled around Ukraine and Russia and uh, seen a whole lot of things happen. Do you want to tell us briefly what is going on right now in Ukraine and Russia from what you see with, with CPM, PMM? Do you want to translate because he's... Struggles a bit with the English. This is my mentor. <laughs> but well, I didn't understand that until just recently. He did it very carefully, very subtly. But it helped me a great deal. I was um, pastor of a church for 10 years. I've organized different churches, several different churches. But the things I learned from David was uh, to worry not about just one seed uh, but to see the whole garden that was going to grow. In the past, I just worked just with one church. And my attention was just on the people in that church. After a matter of time, I, I saw this church was not growing at all. It was just falling apart. I started meeting with David. I took a step back. And so I looked at the wide, bigger picture. And I and we started to work with lots of different leaders in Ukraine. And leaders right now are working in nine different regions in Ukraine. These are all leaders, they have their own teams of leaders that they work with. This is for two years, this has grown to that stage. So now we have leaders in Russia as well. This year we went to Russia and we did several different seminars with David. Just recently, I was with them again in Russia. They're on to the third generation of leaders there. Sorry, this is the, the leaders that have now got together in Russia, and I wasn't there. And they, they took stock of what, what is taking place. What, what, what helped you in the time we spent together? What, what helped you the most? Um, so the first thing I learned about mentoring is it's about a relationship, it's not about control. Because in Soviet countries like this, I've got so used to control. That's how society works. 
И когда у меня была церковь, когда я занимался со своей церковью, у меня был такой конкретный контроль. Control. Uh, и control. Через, несколько, ну, через лет, наверное, 8 лет, когда я проанализировал свою команду, с которой я работал с этими учениками. Они ничего не хотели делать. Я говорил, давайте сделаем это. Давайте сделаем это. Но они говорили, окей, делай. Я не мог понять, почему они не делают, почему у них нет инициативы. И Дэвид помог мне понять, что из-за того, что из-за надмерного контроля они как бы я убиваю их инициативу. И я понял, как не убивать эту инициативу, как как не контролировать, а управлять с помощью отношений. So I learned how not to kill that initiative. Um, I said to encourage that initiative. Ну, и это очень помогло. Сейчас я тоже начинаю пить кофе. So help me a lot, and I'm just starting myself to drink a lot of coffee, just like David does. То есть я не контролирую этих лидеров, и они не чувствуют этого, что как бы я там главный, а они мне подчиняются. Мы просто общаемся. Я просто звоню к ним, общаюсь с ними. Мы встречаемся с ними. Например, вот я сюда приехал, здесь есть Настя в Черкасах. And a girl called Nasty here that we've been working with. She invited us to stay. We're just sharing together um, things that are going on for her, what sort of help she needs. We pray together. И это ну, не чувствуется такой контроль, как будто бы приехал какой-то там начальник и э, пытается что-то кого-то заставить. Она это делает сама и, и без меня, я только направляю. И так происходит со всеми лидерами по Украине. That's how it works all these leaders in Ukraine. И это дает такое движение, как бы, ну... Э, Люди сами как бы инициативу проявляют в том, чтобы делать. And she had uh, 13 groups and 13 villages around here. Mm. And uh, she's just been to Tatarstan and told us stories there of uh, working with some of the children of some of the Muslims. The Tatar people are Muslim. And uh, how the authorities call them in and discipline them. And uh, part of the discipline was to, they had to go to the local museum. I don't know why, but they had to go to the museum. They had a T-shirt on that said "Every Nation," and so the authority called the guy at the museum and said, "Every Nation is coming to you." <laughs> and so the, when they arrived there, the guy just you know he was totally intimidated because he didn't know what to expect. <laughs> uh, but but you know um, this is this is generational disciple making, generational mentoring. You guys got any questions that you want to ask? This is an opportunity. They drove 11 hours to come here just to spend time with me, but I said they've got to come and meet you guys. So, you guys have any questions you want to ask Sasha? About the mentoring relationship, or do you mean more broadly? You can go broad if you want to. So you no, long, no longer have the church. 
свой. Ну, есть церковь, которую я организовал, я с ними работаю дальше, но ну, как бы, я переехал в другое место и занимаюсь миссионерством. So first a job is a missionary. And so the second thing he does, he's, I told you earlier, he does sort of expeditions through the mountains, he's a guide, and he takes groups of people and shows them beautiful places. Okay. Thank you. No more questions? Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Sasha. Um, so I, I, I've given up on the PowerPoint. I've paused on that one because I felt that we could get some value uh, out of just seeing. And, and what I want you to see is several things. Uh, I want you to see um, disciple-making movements. You know, we went to see a girl yesterday that's being discipled by Sasha, and she pulled out a list with photographs. And, and you know, I think it was 13 villages around here. In the average village, I think she says about a thousand people. And um, you're seeing multiple generations of disciple makers. Now, not all of them, I mean, she's not going to other countries. I am. You know, we don't have the same role. Uh, but everybody has the role to reproduce themselves. And everybody plays a different function in doing that. Um, and so we kind of run out of time so I'm going to just open up five minutes for general questions and then and then stop right there um, and if there are questions we can go for lunch yes Steve uh, how many sashes do you have and how do you find sashes um Wow, I don't know. Um, in different countries, different different people. So it, uh, part of what I was going to show you, but I'm not going to do that now, is that movements are chaos. It's not an organizational diagram. So I don't have a diagram in my head that says, here's David, and I have 10 people. So it's hard for me to respond to that kind of question because I don't have that. What we have... Is, is a complex movement and, and in that movement there are leaders and there are hubs and there are people and some of them are moving closer to me and some are moving further from me some are growing and more strategic some I spend more time with some I spend less time with some of them I just happen to be in the country and hey great I can phone Sasha and he can come and see me um, and so that, that really is all over the place um, I, we have a, a language barrier. So I have a battle with, with Sasha. We can't communicate too well on Skype or electronically. We've tried. It doesn't really work. There are other guys that I'm spending a lot of time with, um, mentoring on Skype and, and talking to. So if you want a number, I can give you a number, but it's not really a, a reflection of, of what is taking place. At any in one each point place in time, you're looking for your Sasha. At any one point in time, people that I'm directly pouring energy into is approximately 18 people. And how, how do you find those people? You come and answer that question. <laughs> we, we, we go into a country, we do training, um, basic DBS training, a uh, number of times, and we start interviewing people, talking to people, uh, we find those responsive people. And usually it's another training and another training until we say, hey, we've got the right people. Then we start seeing, are they the right people by the actions they take? Are they starting discovery uh, Bible studies? Are they reproducing leaders? Are they doing these things? As they are, we move closer to them. Now, this could be a year down the road, and there could be, you know, a hundred people like that that are at different levels. And, and I'm trying to figure out which ones are the ones that we should be spending time with. And over a process of time, it's narrowing down to one person. And it happened pretty quickly here. 
Um, it, it wasn't. It was about two trips. By the third trip, uh, I had to go to Russia, and we had to move all over Russia. And he he came and joined me in St. Petersburg, I think. And we started doing trainings, and we did this whole training trip across Russia. And by the second or third trip, I was saying, "You do the training," and I was sitting back, and he was fighting with me and arguing with me. You remember? <laughs> and. I was saying, you train, and he said, no, they invited you to train, and I said, I don't care, but you train, because I knew from our relationship he was doing stuff, and he was doing it in local culture. So he started training, and then I started to talk to him, and so it was that, that handoff and saying, you have what it takes, go for it. So that whole process, you know, models of watch Eve was taking place, but very, very relational. Does that answer the question? <laughs> that answers the question very well. Okay. One, two more questions. That's it. I think one of the other answers to that question is that you, is that you really want to find them. You're really asking the Holy Spirit to reveal those people rather than just going and doing a training. You are intentionally looking for that person and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal it. If you don't want it, that's not a concern, then you won't find those. So you've got to want it. You've got to trust God's going to lead you to them. But typically, the way you find them is to initially to train broadly and look for who's faithful and fruitful. And, who and then you spend a lot of time with that person who helping them. Who, who pursues, pursues you? Sasha pursued me. Okay. In the very first training, Sasha pulled me aside into a room and said, I need help, let's, let's talk. You remember that? <laughs> and so uh, we went up and he started pursuing me, aside from the group. And um, sometimes it's the guys that arrange the first trainings. Often it's not. Often it's somebody else. So you've gone around this drive for the past three days, different countries, ten different places. Any uh, kind of parting shots, words, encouragement, admonitions, uh, observations, anything you want to throw out here that says, hey, look, just what I'm observed here that I encourage you toward, encourage you to do? Who, who in this, this whole group has actually sat through a, a level one training that's been taught how to do discovery Bible study and find people of peace over a period of two or three or four days? How many of you have actually done that? Training. Okay. Uh, about 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 half about half the room. Well, here's the, the first thing I would say. The others that if you're interested in movement, that's the starting point. Uh, that's that's what you that you got to get those basics under your belt. Um, the, the the second step is to go try it yourself. But but here's the key. Um, movements are not started by foreigners. Full stop. Full stop. No correspondence will be entered into. No argument will be entertained. There is no way a foreigner starts a movement. <laughs> and so your, your primary job, once you've learned how to do it and you've done it yourself and you've learned the basics and probably the group that you start is going to fail, your primary job is to go find the local leaders, the indigenous leaders in the country, and empower them and mentor them and coach them and hide yourself because they will be the catalysts for the movement. Even if I was living in Ukraine, I wouldn't be able to get it going. Sasha would be the guy that would make it happen. And so that is your primary, primary role is identify those local leaders and empower them from day one. We have a model of mission that says we have to establish something that looks Western and make this thing work and then hand it over to locals. And that model has failed historically dismally. It doesn't create movements. The, the work from ground up needs to be started by local people. And our role is to empower them. And so that's what I would say. If you haven't done level one training, do level one training. If you've done level one training, try it. Do some groups. Understand if you're a foreigner to the culture, or if you're a professional paid pastor, you're not the best person to, to get it going. But, but do it because you need, you need the experience. 
thirdly, once you really understand the principles practically, you've got to go hunt out the local people and you've got to hunt out lay people that will start making disciples. And that's where disciple making starts. Everything else, you know, all the strategic functions and things, they just serve that. That's where movements start. And that's what movements are about. Steve, you want to add anything to that? David, you talked about how Mr. Watson spent quite some time with you. That must be very key in your understanding, grasp, and intentional move towards building movements. Mm -hmm. Not many people have that opportunity. Yeah, but you you know how you attract that kind of mentoring? Mm -hmm. You do something. David, by the second trip David did, um, he came, I'm lying to you, it was the first trip, the very first time I met him, we sat, sat in the lounge, him in his pajamas, my, my, me and my pajamas and talking, and when we went back to the airport, that day that I, I, that week I'd skipped the training, I hadn't done anything, but now I'm connecting with him. We went back to the airport, and I said to him, when are you coming back to South Africa? And he said to me, never. Now, that's a shock for me. You know, this is the first time I met him. And I said, why? He said, I've been here seven times and no one does anything. And I said to him, you will be back one year from now. And I'll tell you why you'll be back. Because we will have moved from 12 to 100 churches. And he said to me, if you move from 12 to 100, I'll be back. And the next year we were at 95 and he came back. The way you attract that kind of mentoring is you actually put those things into practice. And I do the same. I do the same. I'll go to an area and I'll start working with people. If they don't do anything, I'm not going to go back. But if they do something, the mentoring process begins. It begins. And Sasha is never going to meet Watson. Right? There's no need to. Have you met David Watson? No. No. And uh, Russian Sasha, who he's going to meet this year or next year or two oh, yeah. years, will never meet Watson and could have just as much No, once, once the, the, the movement is Ukrainian, they're learning new things now. They're, mm-hmm. they're teaching me. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's being humble, but he actually, he's, he's teaching me. He's gonna, he said to me, they've now discovered a movement in the 1800s that was in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and they're learning things from there. I want to find out what are they learning. They're teaching me. So the movements now is growing and it's Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, and we're peers, we're growing yeah. and we're peers. Right. I mean, so the, so, so the comment mm-hmm. back is Watson is not critical to get mm-hmm. the movement started. David, such as Watson. Watson. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the meaning that you need somebody catalytic in your life, I think. When Jesus went and said to Peter, follow me, he didn't uh, spend much time looking for Peter. He just said, follow me. Well, I can just say from my perspective, what attracts my attention is when I spend time with people and I come back, I want to say how many disciples you're making, how many disciples have they made, how many discovery groups are going. And if you don't have an answer to those questions, it's probably the last time I'm going to spend time with you. Mm-hmm. I don't need friends. I've got lots of friends. I, I'm looking for people that I can mentor, and they become new friends. But I, I'm not insecure. I'm not trying to get people around me. I'm trying to see the world one for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to spend time with people that are actually implementing. That, that's how I focus my energy. Yeah. Good. Good. Have you got some glimpse into what I do? <laughs> and um, it's, it, it's hard work, but it's a great job. We see it. We see incredible things. We see movements. We see, and I get to go. You know, like last night to go and visit a young girl and sit in her flat and local culture and you know eat local food and out of the restaurants and far from where the Westerners go and. And hear the stories of what God is doing with multiple generations. And that's the most important thing of it all.